Muslim women are often the focus of debate when it comes to public conversations about Islam. Much of this centers on feelings and assumptions surrounding an object, the veil. Rafia Zakaria, journalist and author, unravels the complex nexus of attitudes, policies, and histories revolving around this object in her fascinating new book, Veil. She demonstrates how the object can serve as a moral delineator, a disciplinary measure, a signifier of goodness, or as a means to subvert or rebel social norms. Through personal narratives and detailed analysis of various social and political conditions, Zakaria offers an engaging and nuanced assessment of the veil in the contemporary context. In our conversation, we discuss notions of the exotic Orient, colonization, representations in photography and painting, prostitution, veiling in legal contexts, public aesthetics, violence, forms of feminism, contextual meaning-making, and much, much more. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Rafia Zakaria about Veil, published by Bloomsbury's Object Lessons series in 2017. Welcome, Rafia. How, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. So thanks for joining us here on New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm excited to talk to you about this, this wonderful book titled Veil. But before we get into the book, we always start with a little bit about the author. So could you give us a little bit of background on your, your, your writing in general, where you see your book uh, Veil fitting into kind of your lar- larger projects as an author? Um, yes. So I am originally from uh, Karachi, from Pakistan. And, um, you know, I, I grew up there and then um, I had an arranged marriage, came to the U.S., um, and then, you know, went to college and then graduate school and, and et cetera here. And, uh, you know, in terms of right now, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist. Um, I do mostly opinion writing. Um, you know, my, my other book is The Upstairs Wife, An Intimate History of Pakistan, which is kind of a feminist history, uh, you know, Pakistani history told through the eyes of eyes of women um you know the central focus being the women in my family um so you know i've been i've been working on issues facing muslim women um issues uh of the veil issues of um the way muslim women are framed within a popular discourse uh, and then, you know, larger issues surrounding uh, terrorism, um, foreign aid. So, yeah, I have a pretty wide uh, kind of ambit. Uh, but most of my long-form writing, uh, the books, have have focused and continue to focus on just on Muslim women and um, try to sort of combat or provide an antidote to the very monolithic construction of Muslim women um, as either victims or pawns um, or escapees from their culture. Um, And that is definitely kind of the larger uh, ideological or or philosophical project that uh, informs my writing is to inflect 
some complexity in um, you know in in uh, in an otherwise uh, persistent uh, portrait of Muslim women as um, you know as persecuted and hence awaiting uh, saviors. And you you certainly achieve that in this book. It's uh, it's nuanced kind of interweaving of. Uh, your own kind of personal narrative with broader kind of social context from from various uh, places. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of set us up with how this book kind of emerged uh, as it kind of appears today, and what. Uh, so it's in this object lesson series. C- can you talk a little bit about? What drew you to this series, and why did you want to write this book within it, as opposed to perhaps, uh, you know, another kind of personal social history or something? Um, yes, uh, you know, the object lesson series is, um, you know, it's it's a series of books written not. Um, not all of them are written by academics, but a fair fair number of them are. And you know, the the editors are academics um, of the series, and um, you know, they kind of uh, are little histories of objects that are otherwise not considered in isolation um, or or haven't gotten attention. So it's this, uh, the larger sort of philosophical framework of object lessons is that, you know, objects themselves have kind of a, a, a literary, artistic and um, history and that they influence um the non-objects, so they influence humans and and other living life in a way that isn't often considered. They they can define space. They can, uh, you know, provide constrictions or expansions. Um, and so it's this idea of taking uh, the objects seriously as indicators of our cultural or historical narratives at large and um and 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 there's of course like a, a aesthetic uh a, an element of aesthetic critique within um within uh within the object lesson series uh because of course it it relies on this central the aesthetics of objects as informing their meaning um and so i you know i i was attracted to this for a number of reasons first of course is that i wanted to disengage the veil from uh in a sense from as being sort of just like this attachment that um you know that 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 exists and and is attached to Muslim women, um, where um, you know it's the the meaning that it adds to the person who wears the veil is not often considered separate from um, from that person or the politics of that person. Um, and the other reason was to sort of bring these. Um, considerations of the whale and of Islam and Muslim women within this aesthetic sphere where it's divested from, you know, I mean, the most sort of common or, you know, the, the idea of the whale is that, okay, is the whale within Islam, the, the debate is on whether is the whale required or not required, um, you know, and, um, 
and 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 then within Western societies where Muslims are a minority, it's always the again it's you know is it required not required or um, you know the women who wear the veil are ones that are more interested in assimilation and then the ones um, who who wear it are obviously interested in sort of maintaining this sequestered identity and so um, I wanted to take uh, take it a, a little bit out of that those sort of um, the routine conversations and consider it also as an aesthetic object that has a reality of its own and that um, sort of uh, does different things to issues of identity and anonymity uh, beyond sort of like this very central religious idea of the whale so you know so the book doesn't for instance talk about go at length about not that those debates are not important but um you know i wanted to expand that question from uh beyond uh on uh, is the whale required or not required uh should we allow it or not allow it etc into this idea that the whale has uh, an artistic and aesthetic history also um, that that is unexplored and that you know is connected to the historical and political meanings but but is not necessarily discussed as often so yeah so those were some of the um, kind of larger <clears throat> philosophical or you know um, dialectical concerns that I w- that I was interested in but then on a purely personal um, you know level I was also very motivated by the questions that I faced personally about the veil and um, the sort of very multi-dimensional uses in that I've seen the veil being put to or the meanings attached to the veil um, impose and they're not sort of the typical they don't follow the typical assumptions and so you know when you're um, a Muslim woman and people ask you well why why do you wear this or why don't you wear this you have this moment of pause you know where you're you're trying to think about how you could possibly explain uh, the complexity of that question and your experience in relation to it, um, and this book, you know, is kind of my condensed response to to that sort of to these very to these questions about okay why why or what is the whale or what are your thoughts on the whale so here you go you know here here are my thoughts on the whale and like a sort of compendium of um of my experiences um and how they connect to like the larger aesthetics of the whale yeah and I think it makes it a really interesting read and uh, certainly one that kind of complicates the, the, the kind of various texts that are out there on issues of veiling. Um, and you, one of the things you begin with in the book is uh, this tension between perhaps independence and constraint 
that you uh, were, were kind of uh, examined through two moments in your life. Um, so you talk about uh, kind of a moment in your early school days um, and then a moment from your, your wedding to sort of reveal the intersections between object and agency. Um, can, can you kind of talk a little bit about uh, how you saw these, these events in your life kind of revealing certain things about uh, desires and decisions and constraints? Yes, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> one of the reasons that I wanted to intersperse, you know, my own experiences along with this discussion is because I think that, um, you know, as, as, as a Muslim, I do, I do feel pressure to sort of, you know, I, I wish people were more sort of attuned or informed about uh, things related to Muslim culture and um, sort of the the uh, the inner workings of uh, of Muslim society, but you know you don't always have that, and um, and I do think that personal stories, and <clears throat> in that way I was lucky with this book because I was given really kind of a wide berth in terms of how I wanted to take this, where I wanted to take this narrative and how much, um, how, how academic it would be or how personal it would be was really entirely up to me, uh, which for a writer is, is just, you know, fantastic. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the ex- example that you talk about, um, and it was also, I excerpted, I think it's in the Paris Review was the same. And it starts in the Rebellion chapter and it talks about um, this picnic. Uh, well, first of all, it talks about the fact that, you know, I went to a school where, uh, in Karachi, where uh, it was all girls and, um, you know, um, we were, there, there were no men around really. And uh, every morning we would go in and, um, you know, we had to be there by eight o'clock. And then at eight o'clock, um, the gates were locked and we were in there. Um, and this kind of all female world um, until the afternoon. And, um, and so the that story in particular is about uh, this one time where my uh, class um, ha- was was going on a picnic, which was uh, to the uh, to the beach, which was a, a huge deal, um, as you can imagine. <laughs> the, because if you're being, if you're, and 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 I must add that the locked in portion. I mean, it sounds kind of, you know, sinister, or <laughs> sounds like cruel. But we never felt like we were locked in. It was a huge school with huge grounds and so um you know it, it, it we didn't have a feeling of of being constrained because um you know we we had a lot of freedom inside and 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 we were at school so so it was a very big deal and uh I had been talking on the phone without permission to some you know random boy that had passed his number to me and uh, <laughs> and I had mentioned this picnic which was it was taking place at a private beach so you couldn't you know it wasn't like a regular beach of course since you know otherwise the 
girls would not get permission from their families to go, you know, to a to a public beach uh, by themselves, and and even even fully clothed and fully well, they would not get that permission. So anyway, we go off to this private beach. I've mentioned this to this, and I never ever thought that. Um, I didn't think anyone could come in there. So here we are at this beach and, you know, as uh, in the Muslim world, you know, we, we, everyone goes to the beach, but we go to the beach fully clothed. And, and as we were that day um, with our teachers and, and snacks and all the rest of it, having fun. And, um, and then like a a boat, a speedboat essentially pulled, pulls up to the beach and it has you know a bunch of oh my god boys in it and uh in that very segregated society this was just like a catastrophe a complete catastrophe and of course they not only did they come they were shouting my name which outs me as the person who uh, essentially catalyzed this catastrophe and brought it on to everybody. And so, um, you know, following this this uh, event, um, I was just, you know, I, I, I faced a lot of consequences. I was really ostracized, which within, you know, this kind of small insulated world of the school was very, very difficult. And so uh, what I started to do to show kind of that um, that um, I had I was um, repentant of of this behavior was that I um, started to wear a headscarf or a veil. Now, and and that excerpt from the book talks about how kind of redundant this was because I was wearing this veil mostly inside school. And inside school, there were no men. Uh, so the veil, you know, in that context, didn't, it didn't really have, I mean, it, it, it signified sort of repentance and like turning over a new leaf. Uh, but it, you know, it wasn't attached to kind of the usual meaning. Uh, it was entirely for women, you know, which were my audience then. Um, and so, yeah, that, that is one of the sort of pivotal kind of um, incidences that, that, I'm, that I talk about, um, you know, in that, in that, in, in Vail, uh, because it shows that this is, this is an object that conveys a kind of a, a meaning that is, I mean, there's a separate meaning, but there's also a deeply contextual meaning, um, you know, that exists within, not even just within a society, but within the very kind of small conversation that was taking place, you know, with the, my friends and teachers in this all-girls school. And, um, and it, it sort of signifies, uh, kind of, a a return to some, or a repentance of, of a kind of action and, and a different sort of person. Like you've, you know, you've, you've changed and you're not going to do that, you know, talking out your class and their picnic location anymore, (laughs) Um, now, you also uh, look very closely at 
this equivalence between the veil and moral goodness. Um, and you, you look at this uh, through kind of several examples from your own life, uh, kind of in markets, um, in, uh, in lobbies, hotel lobbies, um, through your own college experience, and then even into your, your professional career, you've seen some of these kind of debates play out. Um, what, what were you trying to get at uh, in this chapter? Uh, what were you trying to tell us through some of these examples? Um, well, I mean, you know, uh, the point that you bring up the central issue of the veil signifying purity or moral goodness or a certain kind of femininity um, is definitely, you know, that that's kind of like the, the meaning that the social meaning that's attached, at least in, in Muslim countries and in Pakistan in particular, um, and the examples that I have in the book um, are examples, for instance, that show how uh, women are aware of that and um, can, can and and are strategic in deploying that as as a foil to um, to sort of constraints on their actions. So I think one of the examples in the book is in a hotel lobby. So now you're in a hotel lobby, you want, and, and you know, you pick a hotel lobby in Karachi for a lot of reasons, but one of them is the fact that they're air conditioned and there's like a, I mean, it's, it's not a private space, but it's a semi-private space, right? So it's not as public as the street. And, um, you know, if you want to meet a boy that you've been talking to or that you're interested in um, over there, then uh, wearing a whale uh, is a way to essentially hide your identity uh, while you're on that date because being seen, you know, and and there are loads of examples of this this sort of thing that happen, and it's it's really not even. Uh, it, I mean, it's not, it's not a newsflash in, at least in Pakistan, that, that, um, that you would do that. Uh, because in case someone, I mean, you know, you see someone, you know, um, you know, uh, it, it, or, 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 or even someone that you don't know there, it's a way essentially that you can kind of hide um, and do this thing that would otherwise is kind of uh, at least among very, very uh, conservative Pakistanis is, is, is something questionable is meeting a boy uh, by yourself. Um, and then of course there are like complete other extremes of that too, where um, you know there there are instances in in Karachi and actually in other parts of the Muslim world in Cairo and other places where uh, women who are sex workers will wear full whales um, while they are out um, you know uh, on in, at public bus stops and and other locations like that where they can uh, sort of you know, see if they're propositioned and, and, and the men know and the women know and, uh, but oftentimes they are willed. And, um, so, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a strategic deployment because it, uh, sort of creates, it's almost like, um, within those contexts that you, you can have, like, it's like a, 
way of creating a private space for yourself, you know, like a pod, um, sort of. And, 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 and increasingly, uh, that use is, is more and more common because, um, the nature of urbanization in the Muslim world, uh, you know, is, uh, is, it's very rapid and it's such that uh, people don't have uh, private spaces within which to have private conversations. And women are, for those reasons, increasingly out in these public spaces. Um, and so, and, and it's not always, you know, to do sort of morally questionable thing. It's also to sort of expand the ambit of their freedom. So I think, um, you know, one of the incidences that I, I, that I start the book with is um, women, uh, you know, is, is me in a hospital waiting room in Karachi where, uh, you know, I, and I'm fully covered and my head is covered, but I was unwailed. And um, I spent like a couple of days watching another woman there who was fully wailed um, you know, and uh, well, I mean, her face was uncovered, but otherwise, and I saw the how mu- how much more freely uh, she could operate within that space, both in terms of kind of the space she occupied, you know, um, so that you know I'm kind of like building forts on either side with like plastic bags or you know tote bags or whatever uh, so that I can kind of have enough space to sit and not uh, kind of have someone in my personal space um, but she uh, didn't have to do that because it's almost like if there's a real woman there's more respect for the space that she occupies and so she was far freer in that space and in her, you know when she's talking on the phone and in her actions and is able to kind of evade the sort of male gaze that otherwise you know in 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 Pakistan it never leaves you um and and never stops making you feel very uncomfortable so um so that that was definitely an example where uh she knew this and she was using it to her advantage um, and and women do that frequently. I mean, in workplaces um, in Pakistan and in other parts of the Muslim world, it's the same thing. It signifies a sort of seriousness of intent and purpose where, you know, I'm wearing this, which means that I'm not here to flirt with you. I'm not here because um, I think this is fun. I'm here to work and you know, it, it, it kind of signifies that with can or can signify that within those contexts. And uh, this, this kind of notion of the veil as a moral delineator, um, in one example, um, from a trip to Cairo, you kind of Look at some of the the everyday consequences of this this dis- disagreement of whether the veil is required or not, and what what exactly that means. Um, but it, it's also, I think, a really interesting example of how these debates foster or reinforce uh, the authority of men. Um, 
Could you could you talk a little bit about this example and why why you brought this into the conversation? Yes, and um, you know, I mean, on a on a purely personal level, I wanted to write about it because it was uh, at the time that it happened, it shook me and upset me so much uh, because um, you know because of the work. I mean, I'm someone who writes about uh, Muslim women and the, my experiences, experiences of other women that I worked with. I'm a lawyer. I worked for quite a while on a project that um, gave Muslim women, uh, provided legal assistance to Muslim women facing uh, domestic violence situations um, and also sort of, you know, done a lot of work on uh, having uh, Muslim women's rights respected within, within American court systems. So with that background, but I don't, you know, I don't cover my hair. And so um, the, on, on this trip to Cairo, uh, there was, uh, you know, I was part of a delegation of academics and, uh, you know, journalists who uh, were visiting Cairo. And this was, this is a while ago. So this is right after, so it must be 2010 or 2011. It was, it was uh, right after President Obama was elected and had given his speech at Cairo University. And, uh, you know, and, and yes, so we went to visit uh, this, um, this kind of, um, it's almost, it's almost like a, a digital website that, that they ran, uh, you know, for Muslim issues and uh, providing kind of guidance on various questions on Islam. And um, and this happened more than once. So it happened there. It also happened at Cairo University, where the women who were wearing headscarves uh, just, you know, very bluntly uh, kind of accused me of not being Muslim because I wasn't wearing the headscarf. So it was very much kind of this attitude that, you know, you've picked the American side instead of the Muslim side, and um, because you're not wearing the headscarf, or or somehow being in the West has diluted your faith and your desire to uh, practice the, you know, quote air quotes true Islam, and um, and you know, and and the reaction of the men there was very telling because, I mean, there's a smugness there uh, about, you know, the fact that a woman who doesn't cover her hair is a lesser Muslim. And then, of course, there were, um, it was interesting to see the reaction of some of the American Muslim men who had been part of our delegation, who very quickly, um, you know, started to sort of take up for this idea that, yes, a veil is required. And uh, in, in a sort of way that they would not have done in the United States, um, you know, and it's almost kind of like now that they were uh, in a Muslim country, they felt like they could sort of, you know, lay down the law without any kind of apologetics that they were telling women what to do. Um, and and it just really uh, shook me to the core because 
like I said, first of all, of the work that I that I do, um, and second of all, because I felt like um, there was a sort of eagerness to take on um, this very patriarchal idea of uh, interpreting Islam in a certain way and then telling women that they had had to do it so if they were going to be considered Muslim. And, um, I, I, yeah, and it was very disconcerting. I mean, you know, the, the, there isn't sort of obviously that I don't offer any resolution to this question um, or, um, you know, or, or even situations like that in the book because I, I, I didn't get one in a way. The book was my process for trying to sort that out um, or at least articulate it so that um, other women who face that, um, you know, that pressure to prove their piety by a, a public act um, can understand that, first of all, that they're not alone. Um, and then for non-Muslim readers or you know, people who teach about veil or veiling or Muslim societies or cultures, um, they can kind of show that that this isn't, you know, there there isn't an answer that you can find in a book about this. There are, uh, you know, very kind of uh, interpretive disagreements about that answer and also in interpretive dis- disagreements about who gets to decide what the answer is for any individual Muslim woman. Um, and I think, you know, for too long, at least within the American I mean, not just American Muslims, but Muslims in general. They're, you know, the, in this post nine eleven kind of moment, where pretty much any Muslim, particularly any Muslim living in the in the West, faces this, um, you know, faces this pressure to constantly explain Islam or and particularly issues like the veil um, that that we have to kind of come up with these bullet point answers and pro, pro present this kind of very united front uh, so that kind of we can be accepted and we can we can defend ourselves or whatever um, and I completely disagree with that approach and and that incident kind of illustrated that for me because or, or what I hoped illustrated that for my readers because it shows that no <laughs> Muslims are not at all united on most questions and that um, sort of plurality is very much and has been historically a part uh, of Islam and um, an Islamic history and that it needs to be recognized and understood. So, you know, the, the response to this kind of monolithic construction of Muslims as violent and repressive and, um, you know, is not that or shouldn't be, in my view, uh, this idea that uh, Muslims are united and there are these pat answers to the questions, and yes, the veil is required for all Muslim women. Um, 
that is not the response, you know. So insisting on unity is definitely not the not the response. And so, you know, I wanted to take that incident and and you know this issue, very contentious issue of veiling, and uh, you know, and and kind of present that, present the fact that no, we're absolutely not united, and there are complex factors that go into how you answer that question for yourself as a Muslim, um, you know, as a Muslim woman. And, and, and there is a backlash to that, to that, to my attitude, uh, because, you know, yes, I mean, in responses to read from readers, I've seen that, you know, there are Western readers who are dissatisfied because they want to go to a book and they want the book to tell them what to think about the veil. And ideally, uh, that, you know, yes, the veil is very repressive and it should be banned. So then they can kind of be affirmed in their prejudice. Uh, and then there are also, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, Muslims and, and, and Muslim women who, who think that the veil is required for everyone and that women who are not veiling are, you know, they are sort of legitimate in, in judging them as lesser Muslims. Uh, because they're not veiling, and so, so there, you know, I I, I recognize that I was kind of like trying to find a not pleasing the, either of those extremes, and um, but you know, I mean, um, hopefully that there there are other readers who can um, see the value in that. Another aspect of the book that I really uh, thought kind of um, filled out this multi-dimensionality that you you kind of framed the book with in the beginning it, are these various legal cases uh, and legal contexts where veiling kind of uh, signifies different things. Um, can can you talk about some of these? Uh, perhaps the case of of Rachel Dawson, who some listeners uh, may be familiar with, but probably many are not, or uh, this case in Canada. Uh, what 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 are the kind of factors that we need to consider in these these legal discussions? Yeah, uh, you know the uh, the Rachel Dawson case from Finsbury Park Mosque in London. Um, I mean, when I read it, I was just um, and it's it's Rebecca Dawson, but and you know uh, oh, that's fine. It's no, no, no problem. Um, is is that I felt that the that that case really kind of show or or upended this idea that um, that the and the the dispute behind it was also kind of related to the larger to the same larger issue that I just talked about in terms of um, you know who like how much interaction with the larger communities and assimilation and all of these questions. So in this case. Um, you know, there was a, the, you know, the backdrop of the case is that in the Finsbury Park Mosque, there was um, kind of, um, you know, uh, an ongoing uh, power struggle between people who wanted to open the mosque uh, to visitors uh, who could, you know, kind of walk through a mosque or, or kind of be taken on a on a little tour where they could learn more about um 
you know, about, about Islam or see what's inside a mosque, really basically to kind of, you know, combat this idea that the mosque is like this secret place where Muslims meet to plot terror, you know, which is unfortunately the sort of boogeyman kind of picture of Islam that that has been created by popular media and mainstream media in, in the West. So, but, uh, you know, so there, so there were people who wanted to do this and there were others um, uh, who didn't. And Re- Rebecca Dawson's husband uh, was one of the people, um, you know, who kind of got into a tussle with someone else over this issue. Uh, he didn't think that this should be happening and the, the other kind of side did. And Rebecca Dawson's husband then got arrested um, because he beat up a caretaker volunteer, um, you know, and 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 it was about again. It was I mean there there was an issue of covering because the visitors that had been taken through the mosque had not been properly you know didn't have their arms and legs covered or their heads covered, and um, and after that Rebecca Dawson's husband went and kind of beat up this person who had led the tour. And so uh, after her husband was arrested, Rebecca Dawson, who wore a full uh, face veil, completely veiled, so only her eyes were visible, um, and accompanied by her brother, went to the Finsbury Park Mosque in search of the caretaker. Um, she then found, found this guy and then threatened him with... Uh, dire consequences if he was going to testify against her husband in um you know in the assault case um the caretaker you know went and complained again to the police and uh, rebecca dawson herself uh still wearing her full face veil was arrested and and then charged with one count of intimidation of a potential witness. Um, And so I wanted to um, kind of present, uh, and and then of course, uh, you know, scene two of this is that her case comes up to uh, for a hearing at Blackfriars um, at the court and, um, you know, she refuses to remove her full face veil. Um, and the only only time that, so they essentially had to take her into a, like a, a room off to the side, um, you know, uh, to affirm that she actually was Rebecca Dawson, this person was Rebecca Dawson. But then she put it right back on. Um, and, uh, but then, you know, once she came back, the judge uh, didn't feel like they could have a trial with uh with her wearing this full face well and then so he orders a stay on the trial uh you know on like considering whether or not uh, a defendant could be compelled to remove the face well while being tried for intimidation uh in a criminal in a criminal trial uh and so um and then he also, you know, commissioned this expert expert report. Um, and, um, you know, like the, the report itself is, um, you know, the, 
that uh, you know the it's it's uh, the expert said that she had the right to wear um, you know because it was part of her religious belief um, the, she had the right to wear this face veil in court but the judge dismissed uh, that that premise and said that. Um, he goes on into kind of like this meandering judgment, uh, but he dismisses the idea, the fact, and, um, you know, in the end, of course, like comes up with like a law to justify it. But, you know, the point of the case, of course, is like the central irony, right, is that here's a woman that's charged with intimidation uh, of a witness, um, but you can't see her her face. And, um and you know she's fighting to keep this face veil on in court, um, but the idea that you can intimidate someone without your identity even being obvious is a very kind of an an idea that isn't usually considered, and it it represents I think a lot of interesting things. First, of course, it upends this idea that. Uh, you know, wearing that full face will, as you know, you know, you there's all these uh, connections drawn, of course, with uh, Afghanistan and Taliban and in these pictures of of fully whaled women as eternally repressed, um, and then you have a woman wearing the almost exact same sort of garment who's charged with intimidation, and then um, you know the judge kind of doesn't know how to make her take this off and he's an upset and he kind of is blaming multiculturalism and too much tolerance and all of that for the fact that she's insisting on wearing this. Um, and so first of all, I mean, you see the contextual difference. And of course the other is that it depends on what the person is doing. So, you know, you can't have like a blanket meaning attached to the veil and um, but then, you know, the this kind of other interpretation of the veil as, you know, veiled women as being intimidating is now of being developed more within cultures, uh, Western culture, because it provides an argument to force women to take off the veil. So, you know, it's 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 sort of ridiculous because, you know, on one end you're sending armies out to all these Muslim countries and, you know, the very, very kind of visible reasons are, so, I mean, for you know, I think I, I mentioned it in the book, for instance, before the invasion of Afghanistan, the Carolyn Maloney, a congresswoman from New York, um, wore a full burqa in, on the House of Representatives floor um, in Washington, D.C., um, to show how, you know, and she's like, I can't even breathe under, under this thing, and, and it's so repressive. And then after that, uh, she distributed these pins with shreds of that blue burqa uh, among people to kind of drum up support, support for the Afghan war. So, you know, on one hand, you've got that. And then on the other side, you're kind of forcing. So on one hand, you're, you're, you're saying you're gonna like vanquish the people who force women to wear whales. But then within sort of 
Western societies, it's the other way where we're going to force women to take off their wills. Um, so, you know, I mean, the, the kind of central mechanism there isn't really uh, what the women want. It's what the men want women to do, by and large. Um, and, and I think Rebecca's case really kind of uh, illustrated that. It illustrated this question of intimidation and repression as it relates to this object and the fact that, you know, you wear it and, and suddenly there's a different meaning to your, your encounter with people than if you weren't wearing it. Now, uh, in, in another chapter, you uh, frame it in the, the sense of feminism, but uh, what you do in the chapter is uh, kind of look at how veiling uh, in a kind of personal way also extends to uh, veiled spaces or uh, inaccessible spaces in a way. And this then uh, is, is framed in the discourse of kind of the Western legitimation of conquest and domination and, and ultimately colonization in many ways. Can you talk a little bit about um, how these discourses of liberation or freedom um, are put to use uh, in support of unveiling uh, in the sense of kind of entrance or presence or even violence? Yes. I mean, um, you know, obviously the more recent and more, uh, popularly known example is um the you know the examples that i give of the of the invasion of afghanistan and the taliban and the burqa uh, <clears throat> or the whale in relation to that uh but you know i wanted to dig around and kind of connect that to a, a longer history of sort of uh you know, this idea uh, and how how much, you know, kind of Western colonialism um, was dependent on this idea of kind of penetrating the 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 innermost confines of um, the Muslim countries uh, where, uh, you know, where, where the French or the British um, essentially invaded and occupied. And uh, one of the books that I talk about at length in in uh, that chapter is, uh, you know, Malik Alula's book of photographs of Algerian women um, during the French occupation of Algeria. And uh, gosh, I cannot recommend the book enough um, to people who study the veil or Muslim women, because in the photographs, there is this sort of uh, progression um, in which, you know, women, uh, and I mean, of course, it's not just Alula's photographs. I give examples, other, other examples from from Western art um, that that showed this similar kind of obsession with penetrating uh, the veil, you know, penetrating the, uh, the harem, penetrating and, and being present. In Alula's book, of course, the, the book starts out with veiled pictures, photographs of veiled women as they're out in public space or, or walking or, you know, and then there's like this sort of... Um, you know, a progression to um, showing women with that, with their faces uncovered. And it ultimately ends to this, with these uh, 
pictures of women who have their breasts uncovered, who, uh, you know, are completely exposed. And those last photographs represent, you know, the, the sort of when that occupation was complete and French soldiers were pay, paying these women so that they could take their pictures like that for souvenirs. And so it it's kind of shows this sort of expansion of control until there is this this ultimate exposure. Um, and and you know the other the under the other f- painting that I talk about is Delacroix's uh, Femmes Algériennes. And um, you know I <laughs> encourage everyone to Google that. Uh, that painting or an image of that painting because um, once again it kind of um, you know it's it's a scene supposedly a scene from inside a harem and um, its presentation kind of represents you know the the painter is present within the action of the harem so it just kind of shows uh, it signifies you know for it, particularly for those uh, people who are uh, who have experienced colonialism is that you know there is now a presence the the foreign presence is now in the deepest uh you know spaces uh most private spaces um of of the societies in which uh, in you know which colonial expansion was taking place and um you know it's not a perspective i think that people are used to thinking about uh, because you sort of envision photographs or paintings as um, you you kind of imagine the photographer or the painter as in as invisible, right? Uh, but someone has to be present within these spaces to take these pictures, and um, and that continues to be a preoccupation. You know, I mean, I then have an example. Uh, from Rod Nordland's book, uh, the New York Times, uh, he was the New York Times uh, correspondent from Afghanistan for a very long time. And his book, very, uh, I mean, about this Afghan couple uh, called The Lovers, um, it came out like a couple of years ago, I think. And, um, you know, it's very unself consciously talks about how. Uh, he, I mean, his photographer needed photographs of this woman, uh, of the girl, uh, you know, in that is a subject of the book and that had been the subject of articles uh, before. And, uh, and you know, she kind of retreats to the female area of the house uh, and isn't coming out. And the photographer is getting very frustrated uh, that that he can't get this picture that he wants and he needs for for his um, article or for the article, and uh, he just pretends uh, not to understand anybody else uh, uh, that's around him, not to understand English uh, because it's been communicated that she she's in there and she doesn't want to come out. Uh, and he just kind of barges in uh, and goes in and takes his pictures. Um, and the fact that, you know, the incident was reported uh, without any self-consciousness or uh, any apologetics in the book is so striking to me. And 
and should, I think, be striking to everybody who who reads it, um, because it shows the same sort of mentality um, and disrespect of these spaces that are have a very particular meaning and that uh, this girl had been relying on for some privacy. Um, and it sort of shows that, okay, your stories and your pictures and access to you is, you know, we're entitled to that access and you have to give it up. And, um, you know, and in that case, of course, she does give it up. You know, she the pictures are taken and, they're in the New York Times, so whether she wants it, likes it or not. Um, and so, you know, that that's where we are today. And it's sort of difficult to say whether there has been any progress from the post, the Femmes Algerienne, or from Malik Alula's, um, you know, the picture, the photographs and postcards that he shows in his book. Um, of Algerian women who are, you know, ultimately completely exposed to these French soldiers. Um, and, I mean, you know, I, I guess uh, until we connect those and we give what's happening now in relation to the veil and occupation and colonialism a genealogy, uh, it seems like an instance or a political debate that is centered in the present and that doesn't have a past. And that's simply not true. Now, uh, there, there's so much more to this book. Um, we could, we could talk for a whole another hour. Um, but, uh, I'm wondering if, if there's any kind of last or uh, kind of central thoughts that you want uh, listeners and hopefully potential readers to to take away before I let you go? Um, well, buy the book. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's all you need to know, right? Be, yes, that would be, uh, you know, my, that would be my last thought. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would like, like to add that, um, you know, this is a book that's written for people who are interested or people who are just coming to the topic. And, um, you know, I, I definitely like, ha- I mean, I've taught, uh, myself uh, issues surrounding the veil and you know I wanted a book that kind of was a good could be a good introductory text for students and for other people who are interested in the topic without kind of overwhelming them with just kind of the uh, sort of uh, jurisprudential kind of interpretations of of this or that uh, edict and about the veil and wearing the veil um, and so so this this is that kind of book you know it's I wanted a mix of personal experience so that people can see that this is a this is something that affects people in their lives and it's um uh you know it is it does exist at this intersection of politics and culture and history uh and and then centrally personal experience um and then there there's sort of an alchemy to all of those uh that kind of comes together in the meaning that you attach to uh, to the veil. So, so yeah. I mean, if you're interested in exploring those dimensions, I'd say 
uh, take a look, take a read. Um, now, Rafia, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the types of things you, you foresee in the future in terms of your writing? Um, well, I'm working on another book uh, that is uh, kind of more centrally about uh, ideas of uh, culture and tradition. I mean, it's a memoir like my uh, like my first book, and I guess in some ways Vail is also uh, at least partially a memoir. So this book explores these ideas of kind of, uh, it ex- you know, the central really question in my relationship to my own mother and kind of her very traditional life as a homemaker and a mother and a housewife and uh, growing up within that and then wanting a very different life that was engaged politically and within these larger debates and and how that relationship changed and how you know there's um there's a sort of comfort in doing and familiarity in kind of doing what your mother has done. And then there is this drive to rebel and have a different life. So, so the book is called a different life. And, uh, so yeah, that's, that's my big project right now. Great. Well, uh, good luck on that. And thanks uh, for making the time to talk about this wonderful book. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Rafia Zakaria about her wonderful new book, Veil, published in Bloomsbury's Object Lessons series, published in 2017.